Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. The Crisis Next Door, a weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world with host Jason Brooks. Thank you for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. A stunned world has been watching the desperate and chaotic scene at Kabul airport where Afghan citizens are attempting to flee the Taliban along with evacuating U.S. personnel and citizens. The Taliban's swiftness in taking over the presidential palace in Kabul following a week-long blitz across the country a culmination of the U.S. withdrawing after 20 years of war, costing 2,500 American lives, 150,000 Afghan lives, and $2.2 trillion in U.S. Treasury. Joining the crisis next door to talk about the fall of Afghanistan is Ian Bremmer, president and founder of Eurasia Group and host of G-Zero World with Ian Bremmer. Ian, good to have you back on the crisis next door. What goes through your mind when you see the horrifying video today from Kabul airport? Um, how badly the Biden administration mishandled execution uh, on the withdrawal. Uh, the And of course, first and foremost, uh, what the people of Afghanistan are going to be experiencing in very short order. Uh, those are the two things that I suppose go through my head um, immediately, though, uh, you know, we can't we can't forget uh, that this has been uh, a um, a failure over several administrations um, and and truly, I mean, the legacy of what the U.S. has not accomplished over 20 years of fighting over two trillion dollars of spending uh, hundreds of thousands of American men and women and allies having served uh, in that country. I don't think we can let that go either. We've seen four different presidencies preside over this war. Of course, the withdrawal being announced by former President Trump towards the end of his presidency, now President Biden going along with it. How does Biden take more of this responsibility for the current situation when the withdrawal was already put into place before? I don't think Biden deserves to be blamed for the decision. Uh, it, it's pretty clear that uh, under the Trump administration, they had already significantly uh, withdrawn U.S. troops on the ground. They were negotiating with the Taliban uh, and the Afghan policy review that Biden's administration undertook when he became president assessed probably accurately, in my view, the status quo was not going to hold. In other words, that even if you maintained the existing troop levels and decided not to go ahead with the May withdrawal that, um, that Trump had agreed to, 
uh, and yes, it was a conditions-based withdrawal, but that was still the intention, um, that the Taliban would still take over the country. So Biden was not faced with, let's keep these troops there or let's remove them. He was faced with, let's expand the U.S. presence to create something sustainable, which he did not want to do and which would have been politically very unpopular in the United States, or withdraw. So I, I think that that decision is not one that we should be criticizing Biden for. I don't think that he bears responsibility for it. What he bears responsibility for is the staggering failure of implementation and execution of the decision to withdraw uh, that we are now seeing the results of on the ground. I mean, truly staggering, which we can go through if you like. Uh, but but I, I want to be clear that that no administration, I have not seen, in my lifetime, I've not seen administration mishandle um, a, a, a foreign policy decision to this degree. Um, and, and that is especially given the level of experience um, that the Biden team brings to bear. It's quite something to see that. Why would Afghan soldiers lay down their weapons so quickly in the face of the Taliban. Uh, we've spent two decades building up the Afghan military, spending such a large amount of money in doing so, costing so many lives, and yet the willingness to lay down those weapons so quickly as we withdraw. Are you surprised that there just isn't a stronger fight for a pro-democracy Afghanistan? I mean, there were some generals that made the argument, uh, and NATO generals over years, that morale was low and absent the Americans there um, the, the Afghan defense forces weren't going to fight hard. But that's very different from saying that they would simply bleed away. And again, this is a huge military and intelligence failure. I want to be clear here. The United States spent 20 years and almost $90 billion training an Afghan force that categorically refused to fight when the Americans left. That's a massive failure on four administrations. And then after 20 years of generals on the ground personally training the Afghan Defense Forces, the United States government still didn't understand the morale and the capabilities of the forces that it had trained. And that is extraordinary. That, that's an intelligence failure. After the Afghan policy review, when Biden made the decision to leave, to push back on May and leave all uh troops, take them all out of Afghanistan by August, U.S. intelligence agencies, their assessment was that the Afghans would be able to hold off the Taliban for two to three years. And by the end of last week, once the Taliban's offensive kicked into high gear, that intelligence assessment dropped to two to three days. Again, in my life, I have never seen that kind of an intelligence failure on the part of the United States. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about the fall of Afghanistan with Ian Bremmer, president and founder of Eurasia Group. When you look at the Taliban, they have taken over those U.S. bases. They have taken all sorts of technological equipment they didn't have access to before. So their armory now gets much stronger. Would you expect some of those Afghan soldiers who've thrown down their weapons and uniforms to possibly join the Taliban as well and, and strengthen the Taliban as a regional force? I mean, not really. Uh, I, I, I say that because Afghanistan is an incredibly fragmented 
and divided country um, in terms of governance, in terms of tribalism, in terms of ethnic affiliation. Um, and, and, you know, the, Af the Taliban, they're not going to control most of the north. The warlords are still there. They chose not to fight on behalf of the Afghan government, but that doesn't mean they're not going to fight on behalf of themselves. And it would be a mistake for the Taliban to think that they can control those people. Um, also, keep in mind that there's going to be an enormous amount of corruption. Uh, I mean, a lot of these fighters that have just been released from jail, uh, you give them you know, access to something that can be sold on the black market for a couple thousand bucks or 10,000 bucks, which is enough to take care of themselves and their families for a while. They're probably going to do it. So, I mean, you, you may remember when ISIS took over Mosul in Iraq and, you know, they, they, they were able to not only grab all sorts of American materiel, but also almost a billion dollars in hard currency and gold and jewelry that was being uh, stored in vaults in the local banks. And most of that money uh, was wasted in very short order and didn't allow them to really build much of a government. I suspect we'll see the same thing on the on the part of the Taliban. How are Afghanistan's neighbors going to take this? Pakistan, Iran, China, Russia all have big interests in the region. How are they going to relate to the Taliban? Uh, China uh, will, uh, by default, become the most important economic supporter of the Taliban, uh, in part because they're the major power in the region, in part because uh, they don't want a failed state. Uh, and in part because they actually have economic interests on the ground long term, rare earth metals, other extractive industries. Uh, but that also means that as locals in Afghanistan are unhappy uh, with the Taliban, and they will be, uh, they will also look to China as an enemy that they will want to attack. And we've already seen some of that um, it, with, with uh, China's you know, expanded relationship with Pakistan. And there have been attacks against Chinese uh, locals on the ground there. Uh, so we'll see more of that. Uh, and this becomes a bit of a bag that the Chinese government will have to carry, even though I, there's very little likelihood that they would want to engage in a direct military confrontation on the ground. Like, I don't, I don't see the Chinese you know, sort of starting a war in Afghanistan, for example. Um, the Indians are the losers here, uh, in part because you're going to have uh, more territory for uh, Muslim extremists to operate in both with support of the Taliban and also because the Taliban don't control all their territory. Uh, this creates uh, more of a fight uh, with uh, the, the Indian government and the Hindu nationalists um, that have been supported by Narendra Modi, uh, the prime minister. Uh, Russia is going to be happy to see the Americans with their nose bloodied on this, but they're not going to play much of a role on the ground. Foreign policy observer Bill Kristol said the U.S. failure fits perfectly with two key messages pushed by the Chinese and Russian governments. First, that U.S. power is in decline. Second, that American security guarantees cannot be relied upon. Is he right? I mean, he's right at the margins. Uh, it is certainly true that uh, American allies looking at what happened here, which is not Trump, it was Biden. Biden's decision to leave Afghanistan was done unilaterally. It was not done with the American allies. His decision on how to handle refugees was done unilaterally. His decision on even the fact that the American acting ambassador fled this weekend, the British ambassador is still on the ground helping try to get citizens out. Why would the U.S. not be coordinating with allies on all these things? This is this is Biden saying America's back and doesn't feel that way. So I do think that American allies are going to look at the United States and this will take a hit. Uh, but uh, American power 
um, is still preeminent in the world, whether you look at technology or the military capabilities uh, or the dollar and the role of the U.S. banks, its geopolitical, geostrategic position, that doesn't change. And Afghanistan was not a first, a second, even a third order strategic priority for the Americans by the time Biden made the decision to leave. Um, and that is very different from American commitments to the Baltics, for example, vis-a-vis -vis Russia, or Taiwan, for example, vis-a-vis -vis China. And the Russian and the Chinese governments are very aware of that. I was going to ask you that. I mean, if, if you were a Taiwanese citizen or you lived in Ukraine, should you be worried about how the U.S. has pulled out of Afghanistan and left its partner to fend off against the Taliban? But you're, you're indicating that Taiwan and Ukraine should at least have some sort of protection going forward from the U.S. It's oh, well, just a you, different you, story. Ukraine is screwed in different ways. And, and, and that, that, by the way, is not new. That was the Europeans refusing to provide any support to the Ukrainians when their government economically was falling apart. So they had to turn to the Russians. Um, and then the Europeans and Americans suddenly didn't like that. So there were opportunities that were missed there. That was a bit of a debacle as well, not as great as what we're seeing transpire in Kabul right now. But again, that's because Ukraine was not a member of NATO. Ukraine was not a member of the European Union um, and and was not made a member of either of those because no one really cared very much about them. So Ukraine is a pretty good example. Um, and so is Georgia, for example, of what just happened in Afghanistan. Uh, the Baltic states are members of NATO um, and Taiwan is a strategic priority for the United States. And you see that with extraordinary um, freedom of navigation, um, uh, military exercises in the region, fun ops by the United States, U.S. military sales in the region, uh, coordination with TSMC, the world's most important semiconductor exporter, all of those things. And, and again, the Chinese and Russian governments are well aware of that. Ian, do you think this latest disaster in the Middle East for the U.S. will cause it to rethink its future involvement in the region? The Middle East is less of a strategic priority for the United States uh, than it has been. A big piece of that is that the U.S. is now the world's largest oil and gas producer. It is energy independent. And, and also uh, the world is moving, thankfully, much more quickly towards renewables and post-carbon energy production, all of which means that the necessity of the United States playing a big military role on the ground uh, with its Gulf allies or more broadly is really limited. And uh, that is a bigger problem for the Europeans, ultimately, and the Chinese uh, than it is for the United States. And so there is an asymmetry uh, that is growing between what the Americans can do and what the Americans are willing to do, and other countries in the world are seeing that that's a problem. Ian, thank you very much for your insights here. Greatly appreciated as we witness these horrifying events take place in Afghanistan with the Taliban taking over the country as the U.S. pulls out. Thank you very much for joining us again here on The Crisis Next Door. We've been joined by Ian Bremmer, president and founder of Eurasia Group and host of G-Zero World with Ian Bremmer. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. 
Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.